potential and possibilities, discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show, bring you another fascinating guest who is helping to create a better tomorrow uh, for so many people. Uh, we're headed back uh, to visit with our friends at, at Microsoft again uh, today and have the honor of being joined by uh, the amazing Tom Lurie, uh, Microsoft's National Director for Artificial Intelligence, uh, Health and Life Sciences, uh, where he serves as a, a strategic advisor to providers, to payers, to various life science organizations uh, all across the Americas, uh, creating enterprise artificial intelligence initiatives, ultimately to transform healthcare at scale. Uh, he focuses on technological process and cultural redesigning of these organizations, leading for the, uh, the creation of intelligent health systems, ultimately to better empower patients, consumers and clinicians. Uh, Tom also served as Director of Worldwide Health for Microsoft, uh, where he worked with a similar portfolio of organizations, both planning and implementing uh, innovative analytical solutions uh, to improve quality and efficacy uh, of healthcare services. Uh, Tom specifically focused on strategies for digital transformation, uh, applied to performance optimization, including AI, machine learning, natural language processing, uh, previously served the Director of Organizational Performance for Microsoft's Health Incubator, the Health Solutions Group. Uh, prior to Microsoft, uh, Tom was the Senior Director of uh, GE Healthcare, where he had global responsibility uh, for revenue lifecycle management, analytics, operational performance solutions. Uh, he's also worked on the entrepreneurial side. Uh, he was the founder and CEO of Virus, uh, which is a US-based healthcare software company, which was named one of the, uh, the top 100 fastest growing uh, Washington companies for three consecutive years at the late Fast 500 technologies list member uh, and, and has spent you know other roles uh, in management and hospital and integrated delivery networks throughout the United States published dozens of articles on these topics uh, and aside from all of that he is an accomplished author his new book just come out uh, a couple weeks ago uh, entitled uh, hacking healthcare how artificial intelligence and the intelligence revolution uh, will reboot an ailing system also, check out uh, AI and Health, the Leader's Guide to Winning in the New Age of Intelligent Health Systems, his previous book. We're honored to have him with us today. Uh, Tom Laurie, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Well, Ira, it's great to be back. Uh, that was probably the best introduction I've, I've ever had. Uh, the only thing you left out was the paper out I had when I was 12, but um, <laughs> I appreciate the background and it's good to be with you. No, it's, it's great to see you again, Tom. Um, you know, the last time uh, you and I chatted in this format was a couple of years ago, right? Uh, I think uh, COVID was just 
coming on the scene. Um, and, and, you know, with that, you know, I would love to just uh, sort of jump off from there. Now it's a couple of years later into the new book. Uh, chapter one, we interrupt this pandemic to bring you some good news. Uh, you introduce the reader to uh, the fact that we've had an incredible revolution in the last couple of years in vaccines, a revolution in drugs, a revolution in uh, personal protective equipment. We haven't thought as much about the intelligent revolution that sat behind all of that um, and the amazing tools that have come on the scene. Talk a little bit about um, the last couple of years uh, in terms of COVID, how the information revolution impacted it. And also, if you, if you, if you can say a few words about your father, because I know that was kind of instrumental in, in the, at the very beginning of this story. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, think back for anyone uh, watching or listening. Um, you know, two and a half years ago, everyone's life changed. And, and um, you know, I opened the book basically by recounting some of what we've all been through, where, you know, all of a sudden this thing that wasn't there simply was. And, and you know, to your point, everyone pretty much has a story. Mine was, you know, as that occurred, I lost my 94-year-old father uh, who was healthy and, and, you know, got through 94 years of life and went from diagnosis to death in three days. And so everyone has this story. It's very personal. Uh, we've all gone through a lot, but, um, you know, the, the first chapter is actually something that started where uh, Forbes asked me to write a piece on, is there any good news about what we've learned through the pandemic? And, and to your point in question, you know, despite the challenges, we learn things like uh, an industry, which is health, health and medicine, which normally moves at glacial speed, is capable of moving at warp speed. We saw that uh, many of the clinical and health leaders demonstrated the ability to do agile transformation when their back's against the wall. Um, you know, at the same time, when you look at uh, what drove agile innovation, the speed to doing many things, uh, it essentially, you know, people were the ones that fought the battle, but the tools they used, the weapons, if you will, were uh, many of which were AI driven. So in the book, I give some examples about how when we first kicked off the pandemic, it was acknowledged we had this global pandemic. Uh, there were thousands of articles and research studies on the coronavirus, um, but they were all in different places, different formats, different mediums. And so uh, you know, we use things like AI and natural language processing, where the Allen Institute for AI and some others brought together in a matter of weeks, 40 some thousand articles and research studies, indexed them, made them publicly available to researchers and public health officials, all in the course of two weeks. Uh, you know, back at Microsoft, obviously we saw what I call pandemonium, uh, pandemic pandemonium setting in. I mean, everyone was very concerned about their well-being, their family's well-being. Microsoft had uh, bot technology. They spun up a very specific uh, COVID bot, uh, made it available free through things like Centers for Disease Control and, and any other hospital around the world that wanted to use it. And it basically allowed anyone to use the bot to plug in their situation, their symptoms, and have the best material for trying to triage where they were and what to do. So. In the first couple of months, it was used by 40 million people to try and say, you know, what do I do? So, so there are many other examples. Uh, finally, you know, you mentioned things like pharma. So um, prior to COVID, um, you know, all of a sudden we have COVID and everyone's talking about we need a vaccine, we need something. And, 
you know, the average time it takes to go from start to getting a drug or vaccine on the market historically is about 12 years. So when you think about where we were and, and the ability to go from there to vaccines going, you know, from development into the arms of people in less than two years, a lot of that was driven by the use of intelligent tools. So, so I bring it together. We, we, we learned a lot, including consumers and, and looking at how they took control of managing their own health. So, you know, as we look forward, it's like, um, you know, I, I, I think we've got a much better handle on the pandemic. I, I think we're moving in the right direction, but it's really changed how all of us think, how all of us live. And then, you know, what I see is how do we take the lessons we've learned for fighting the global pandemic and now fast forward, let's apply those same things to all the other big challenges like chronic disease, like the opioid crisis, like the tremendous problem we have with clinical staffing shortages and the number of people we count on who are burning out every day. And continuing along that line of thought, uh, you know, you, you mentioned vaccines and the drugs, we sped that up tremendously. You mentioned the tools uh, that allow uh, for the rapid dissemination of, of information. Another really hot topic for us on the show in the recent years uh, has been this area of the social determinants of health. All the other stuff, the environment where people live, uh, where they work, where they play, um, where they age, uh, all ultimately impacting health function, quality of life, and, and, and very instrumental in, you know, as part of the, the big picture uh, of health and wellness. You have a chapter in the book uh, entitled Genetic Code versus Zip Code, where you, you dive into this issue and ultimately talk about how some of these tools, like the artificial intelligence, ultimately allows us also to better understand and uh, address the social determinants of health and how they impact us. Talk a little bit about uh, the toolkit sure. and, and social determinants, if you would. Well, uh, another great uh, line of direction. So, I mean, starting out not to geek out on anyone, but, you know, when you look at, and if you look at AI and you understand AI and what drives it, in, in a nutshell, AI needs, feeds, and thrives on data. Without data, uh, you know, things like predicting and uh, predicting anything doesn't exist. Algorithms, again, that they, they feed on data. So uh, historically in healthcare, uh, if, if I go into a research center, uh, an academic medical center, and just get people talking about data, they're gonna talk about traditional things like data from an EMR, data from imaging, data from all those things. And yet, um, again, uh, AI doesn't care about anything other than data that's useful. So we're increasingly seeing, a lot of people are talking, not as many using it uh, as we should, of what we call social determinants of health, which is all those other things that have as big an impact on health and longevity as anything you're gonna get out of your lab results or image. So to your point in the, in the chapter, I, I start by posing a question of, when you think about a predictor of your health now and in the future, what is a better predictor, your genetic code or your zip code? There's a lot of data that suggests that zip code is going to have a bigger impact on your health status today and tomorrow than your genetic code. And we unfortunately have lots of examples where when people don't have access to certain things, their health status suffers. And, and, and so one, one quick item back to COVID. So early in the pandemic, we started seeing data that showed uh, that African-Americans were twice as likely to get and die of COVID than a Caucasian. And, and what's interesting is it's a much smaller percentage of the population who were getting sick, 
But um, again, not, not to geek out, but the, the data of twice as likely is a statistical average. What we really learned, and when you dug into some of the data that was being presented to Congress at the time, uh, that twice as likely to die is a statistical average. What the data really showed is if you lived in Washington, D.C., you were four times more likely to die as an African-American, not just twice as likely. If you went to Michigan, you were something like five times more likely to catch and die of COVID as an African-American. So the data alone showed us it, it wasn't something where at the time we were all trying to figure out what was going on with this disease, but the data alone told the story of it wasn't that you were African-American had something special in your genomics. It was where you lived. It was many other factors. So, you know, we've got lots of data that shows understanding the social determinants and how they impact health. It's much more likely that we can use that data to be evaluating, predicting, and then trying to fast forward to take actions to improve health going forward. And along those lines, you mentioned equity, uh, and, and you know, we, we talk about health equity a lot on the show, and you know, every person having this opportunity to to attain their, their perfect health. You 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 uh, introduce the reader to uh, the topic of health equity. Now talk a little bit about what that, that means. Well, yeah. So going beyond uh, things like AI, uh, I, I kind of made up that term uh, because when you look at uh, equity of anything, but particularly health equity. Uh, increasingly today, again, whether it's health, whether it's banking, whether it's your access to better, the best education, um, your ability to achieve more is directly related to the access you have to technology, to uh, connectivity. And, and, and so, you know, we're seeing, for example, back to uh, AI and bias. Unfortunately, uh, there's a lot of data that's suggesting that uh, some of the uh, biases and injustices in the real world are crossing over the digital world through things like bias and machine learning algorithms used to predict and manage care. So, so that's a whole field. But the broader topic of health equity relates to things like, um, once again, we, we saw telemedicine playing a huge role and helping us manage through the pandemic. Uh, but what we're seeing in some of the data is suggesting that it produced tremendous benefit, but it probably was skewed towards benefiting people that were middle-class and above, who had access to good broadband. Uh, so, so whether it's um, you know uh, income levels and, and the lack of access to your smartphone, to connectivity, or whether it's people living in rural areas that do not have good broadband access, uh, those are clearly things that if we're to benefit from things like telehealth, telemedicine, we have to address. Beyond that, there are other things that are, are soft-sided but still equally important. So, um, you know, if we were in a crowd and, and you learned that there was someone who, for whatever reason, didn't know how to read, would, would probably, you know, feel badly for them, would want to support them. but. Uh, you know, there's a whole class of people who are basically digitally illiterate for many reasons, whether it's their age, they've never had access to the technology. And yet, most of the time, when you find someone who doesn't know how to be literate going online, we, you know, many people tend to make fun of them. So, you know, it, it, it's things like that of how do we make sure people have access to those new mediums to be able to access care, access content, self-manage? How do we make sure that you know those who have not had the opportunity become 
digitally literate uh, early in life, we help solve for some of those things because as we do that, their health status is going to improve. Of, of equal importance, it probably makes these systems we're using more efficient when it comes to you know, the per capita expenditures of healthcare and then the health quality measures hopefully are going to go up. One other area that um, has, been, has been really, well, actually two themes that have been hot for us on the show. One, uh, just the, the topic of, of aging, a healthy aging. And then uh, we've done, you know, had guests on talking about moonshots. Uh, in chapter nine in the book, you put them together. Uh, intelligent aging is healthcare's a big moonshot. Uh, you introduce the reader to some of the th themes that we, we've discussed in terms of uh, this concept of health span, the ability to, to delay disease and the I mean, the, the sort of the trillions of dollars that ultimately could come back to the economy if we just could stave off some of these chronic diseases of older age. You also introduce some new concepts that I've never heard before. One that uh, a really fascinating term called ambient intelligence, where you talk about uh, ultimately an invisible network of sorts, uh, sensors, cameras, listening devices that could, you know, basically in real time constantly assess and manage uh, older citizens. Talk a little about this, uh, this concept of ambient intelligence, if you would. I think it's a fascinating yeah, term. Sure. Well, um, so to start with ambient intelligence, just uh, think about all those things we're already doing. Uh, you know, how many of you who are, are tuned in now have something like Alexa? Uh, how many of you have, you know, conversational AI, which is what you do when you hold up your phone and say, Siri, give me this. Um, we've got all kinds of things that AI has provided, including, um, you know, all those things that have reached human parity, meaning the technology is as good as a human, vision, speech, language, uh, knowledge extraction. So increasingly, those are becoming uh, very pervasive, almost in the background. So the idea is, how do we bring together those things to help, and not in a creepy, <laughs> futuristic, dark world way, but how do we have things in the home that allow us, um, you know, with full control of that, you know, that older American, to, to be safer, to be uh, better able to stay in the home instead of getting put into that memory care center, into that sniff. Uh, how do we not only keep them in their home, but have them have better well-being? How do we help them so that even if they have limited mobility, and, and so many times an older American, uh, elder care is being provided almost always by the daughter, not necessarily living in the same town, but how do we actually use this to keep them more socially active, to keep them engaged in ways that make the quality of life they have better for a longer period of time. And, you know, beyond that, again, going back to the health economics of the way we do certain things now, we, we wait for someone to have a problem. Uh, they then either have to get moved out of the home or, you know, they take a fall and they end up in the emergency department. Um, so there's so many things we can do, not only to improve the quality of their life longer, but also on the health economics, just make it much better. So, uh, you know, when I, when I look at what's gonna happen, um, I mean, with the healthcare system as it is today, uh, I think the biggest challenge is, um, you know, one of my uh, favorite, probably the foremost gerontologist in America, who I quote in the book, uh, Ken Dykewald, he basically describes the boomers as what he calls the pig through the python. Wherever they are, there's a big ball. So today, 
there's a boomer turning 65 every 15 seconds, and that will be going on for at least the next decade. So once someone reaches the age of 65, the way the health system works now, they consume an average of three times more than those under 65. And, and that's just to take care of the medical problems in our break fixed model today. So, so the real challenge is how do we use ambient intelligence? We're already seeing it today. And again, the, the pandemic brought some of this forward, telemedicine, remote monitoring, uh, all of these things, which are the initial steps of, of more pervasive ambient intelligence that can be used by the caregivers. It can also be used though, again, by the older Americans or their family to provide that better quality of independent living longer. And, and I just, I'd wrap up my stream of consciousness here by saying, yeah, as part of the book, uh, goes into the dilemma we're already facing, which is simply, um, you know, there's a lot of data, there's some authors that are suggesting in the next decade or so, it will not be uh, unheard of for many more uh, citizens to be living to be 100 and beyond. And, and when you look at in the last 100 years, we've added something like 45 years to the average lifespan. So it's, it's not that, um, you know, ridiculous to think that we're going to have people living much longer. The real question comes, if I ask the question of, uh, of, of anyone, would you like to live to be 101? Most often the answer is, well, it depends. You know, if, if, if I can live to 101 and be active and, and cognitively good and have a good quality of life, yes. If I'm gonna have a decade of you know, poor quality of life or suboptimal, maybe not. And this is the dilemma we face when it comes to, we're expanding lifespan so people are living longer but we need to make sure that health span, which is the quality of the life we have, is catching up. We need to close that gap. And again, there's lots of things we can look at when it comes to use of data, use of technology, use of AI to create tools to start closing that gap. Other themes uh, that you touch on, Tom, later in the book that um, maybe a couple of years ago when we talked were just getting started or, or not completely optimized things like the metaverse, which you know is on the tip of everyone's tongue nowadays. Uh, brain computer interfaces have evolved a lot. Um, you know, biohacking and and uh, has come a bit of a way as well. Um, as we get into sort of these these new areas, which you know I'll, I'll throw into the they they involve health, but also sort of the broader uh, spectrum of uh, well, I'll say it's human enhancement, human potential. Um, uh, you know. What if, what if these, some of these areas get you the most excited? I mean, obviously you have lots of customers all across the Americas, but uh, you, you must see some really amazing stuff. What are, what are some of the baskets that are like, wow, I mean, uh, <laughs> these are things that I really, you know, want to dive into in the, in the coming five to 10 years. Okay. That was, that's a very broad one. I run. Yeah. So, um, so, so in the book, I actually have a chapter that says, here's what's, you know, here's what, is already here as far as technology and its applications in the next, let's say, three to four years. I've got another chapter that says, let's look, you know, let's look down the road 10 years. So, um, you know, so I always like to put out the caveat because everyone loves to talk about that, you know, sci-fi kind of stuff. But, um, you know, there's a lot of technology that's starting to emerge that's real now, but it's just immature. And, and, you know, that's where it, it's kind of like saying, um, I know a tornado's coming, but I just don't know where it's going to land. So, so some of this is, you know, um, a lot of predictive stuff. But, 
You know, I look at things like you mentioned the metaverse. I, I probably started chuckling a little bit because for the last, I don't know, five years, AI has been the shiny object everyone loves to talk about. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of glad the metaverse has come along. That's becoming the new shiny objects. And now we can just have real conversations about data and AI. But, um, you know, I, I get asked that a lot. I, I, everyone's making a play, including a certain company that everyone knows that changed their name to Meta. Um, you know, Microsoft has been doing a lot of work and area of things like augmented reality for a long time and a lot of other technology. What I would say is it's definitely the future. Um, for those of us who are old enough, uh, if you have kids now that are into gaming, look at the sophistication of the gaming systems today. I remember as a child, the first time I saw a game was called Pong. It was a little black dot <laughs> up and down on the screen. So when I look at the metaverse today, I kind of feel like we're in that Pong stage but mark my words, it, it's going to happen. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be that next revolution. But like anything, it, it's going to take time to go from everyone excited and enthusiastic to having it be real and useful and applied in ways that drive benefit for those who are consumers of anything, including healthcare. You know, beyond that, uh, we've already got a lot of examples of things like biohacking, which sounds dark and, you know, kind of scary, but... I mean, we're already seeing studies where, um, you know, people who are severely brain impaired are able to actually start communicating through some implants. Uh, we're seeing a host of things, but again, very early in the game. Uh, there's something known as smart dust, which uh, to me is fascinating, which is essentially imagine a microprocessor and sensors that's smaller than a grain of sand. Mm. Uh, and, and the ability to sense, to uh, transmit data somewhere else so imagine something like that getting ingested uh, and either temporarily or permanently floating around in your bloodstream circulating. Um, lots of things that, um, again, you can either start getting a little worried or you can start looking at the positive aspects of what we might be doing. So there are hosts of other things. Uh, you know, you, you always have to throw in quantum computing. Um, Again, I, I think there are a lot of people positioning around that, uh, a lot of good progress being made, but I don't think you're going to be going down to Best Buy and picking up your quantum computer server anytime soon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tom, when we chatted last, you you introduced uh, us to the uh, the AI for Good initiatives at Microsoft, um, and then you know part of that is AI for Health and something like $60 million philanthropic program, looking at nonprofits, various research organizations, <laughs> tackling these tough challenges. Uh, and when I went to the, the website recently, I mean, you really uh, put a lot out there in terms of COVID, drug discovery, health equity, as we've been discussing in sort of the basket of health insights. Could, could you reintroduce us to AI for Health and, and some of how that program is uh, is moving along and ultimately listeners to the show, if there's nonprofits or small innovators out there, how Microsoft ultimately works with them. Yeah, yeah well, again, I, uh, you know, bragging rights, if you look at uh, the world of AI, Microsoft over the last decade or so has had more first than anyone else on, you know, first to human parity in many things. And, you know, we, we've been at this a long time. Um, we're pretty good at it. And, and, and yes, we, you know, um, you know, we do that for business. 
Beyond that, we're big believers in how it can be used and should be used as a force for good. So a lot of our customers who are you know, investing in it and doing great things in the area of research, drug discovery, uh, provider organizations, public health. But beyond that, we have a program called AI for Good. Um, I, I can't tell you how many millions of dollars we've given away, but it's in, in the tens of millions of dollars. And the idea is we have the technology but many times the people with the best ideas and the passion to do good in the world, you know, are not a Microsoft, they're, they're, they're researchers, they're the not-for-profit that was founded to do one thing. And, and so uh, we have a grant program. If you just go out to any search engine, type in, you know, Microsoft and AI for good, you can probably get to the site to look at where we've given money and how to apply for a grant. Um, you know, some of that changes year to year, but our commitment's been there for a number of years. and. You know, we've done a number of great things. Well, I shouldn't say we. Microsoft has funded some of the most brilliant people doing innovative things around the world for health. But you also look closely and, uh, you know, we're, we're giving uh, a lot of grants for AI for things like the environment and, and uh, education. And, you know, if it's a good human cause that's going to drive positive change at scale, and somehow can benefit by the use of artificial intelligence, that's really the charter of the program. So um, again, I just saw something where, um, you know, AI was being used to do some things to be really looking at migration paths of things like dolphins and looking at how uh, we can better understand and predict what's happening with climate change. Um, but there are so many things, but it starts with people that have the best ideas and they don't have to be AI experts. They have to be the people saying, here's a problem that needs to be solved. Say a few words, if you would, about the, um, the responsible AI practices. Cause again, that was a, you know, another area that you're, you're quite proud of the last time we chatted and, um, you know, you brought up the, the situation of how you, you know, you, you you make sure you know uh, bias is not uh, something that pops up in, in in some of these novel AI systems and so forth. But to talk a little bit about how that's been yeah. going. Ultimately, how once again you use these different uh, principles to uh, not just in your own work but in your partnering practices. Yeah. So let's start out with healthcare. And and uh, the simple question is this. Um, you know, when you look at AI and the ability to do good in the world, to basically change the way healthcare works for the better. The question is simply, uh, will AI be used as a force of good for all customers or consumers or just some? And, and, and that's really, you know, if you look at how the healthcare system, particularly in America works today, um, you know, some people benefit, but not everyone benefits equally. So as we move ahead with AI, how we deploy it, how pervasive it becomes, some of the other topics we just touched on, such as, um, yeah, telehealth is great. It's too bad that I don't have broadband to use it. Uh, it's too bad that my elderly uh, Hispanic mother who lives in a rural area, uh, she knows English, she knows Spanish, but she never really had the skills or the ability to learn skills on, on how to be digitally literate. So those are all the things, but. More importantly, uh, back to what I said earlier, we, we have things like as AI, uh, machine learning algorithms are putting in the, uh, being put in the field every day um, on, a, you know, on a basis where people are using them. The question is, uh, does each algorithm produce good for everyone that's being used for, or just for some? So um, 
again, I don't want to geek out on you or your audience, but we look at things <laughs> like uh, I was in a situation with uh, a, an organization that was very proud of an algorithm they had developed that was able to predict some things on, um, you know, what to do with a treatment of, of something. Um, and they were very proud of it in their, their test. It was producing measurable value when it came to just predicting things that would improve health. Um, but, but and again, that measurable value is a statistic. Um, it's, a, it's typically a statistical average on the good you're producing. But when you look at, again, when it's a statistical average, there's a range of, of data. So if I'm producing good, you know, if I've done a test with 10,000 patients and it's produced good and I can measure it among 10,000 patients, that's great. But when I ask the question of is producing better good or more good, is, is producing good accurate predictions at a rate that's three times better for white males than Hispanic females? It's still doing good for the overall population, but there's a big variance in who it's doing good for, who's benefiting from it. Is that okay? And, and, and again, uh, we work globally, but if I just stay with America, uh, a situation like that would technically be legal. It would be compliant with all regulations such as HIPAA. But if there's great variance in doing good, uh, is that okay? And it, it, you know, it's clearly an ethical issue and ethics is it's always a tricky topic because it's not codified as you would have in a law and a regulation. So I think that's eventually gonna get resolved, but many times our technology and the use of it gets out ahead of the regulators and those who eventually set the standard. So the ability, and we've got lots of tools. Microsoft has an office responsible AI. Um, we provide tools to help assess and mitigate those things. So the ability to say, I've got an algorithm. And I mean, bias comes in many ways. I, I've never met an organization or team that's purposeful in creating bias, but it, it comes through things like the data that's used. It comes through, you know, our conscious and unconscious bias. So it, it's all about being aware of those things. So as we're getting excited and deploying AI, being mindful of, again, our ability in making choices to have it benefit everyone, not just some. Tom, you, you have um, you, the new book out now. Obviously, you, you have everything you're doing in terms of overseeing uh, the uh, AI programs uh, in the Americas uh, for the health and life sciences. What else uh, is hot that's coming up? I, I, I know that I remember that you're um, a big fan of the HIMSS uh, Society, uh, Healthcare Information and Management System Society. I know they have some conferences. Uh, where can we uh, see you, uh, maybe meet you? Um, what else is happening for 2022? Well, stay tuned. I'm, I'm, I'm lining up the uh, fall schedule now, but and again, I, I, I appreciate the question. I appreciate the visibility. But look, um, there are so many smart people in this field right now. And, um, you know, so many others. It's like, um, yeah, I just wrote a book. It, it seems to be doing very well. Uh, Amazon just named a, a number one new release of things like healthcare delivery, medical informatics. But the majority of the book are just, you know, things I learned by working with all these great teams that are out there in the world today that are, you know, they're the doctors, they're the nurses, the data scientists that are truly on the front line, the sharp end of the stick of trying to change healthcare for the better. So, um, 
you know, that's where, uh, yeah, there are a lot of great conferences. Uh, there are some that, you know, frankly, are, are there to kind of play on the fringes of maintaining status quo. But I, I'm going to bring us back to the theme of the book and, and, and you know, the, the championing of, look, the last two years have been very challenging. Yep. It, it shined a light on what is good about healthcare and what needs to be fixed. And, and so, you know, I look at something like... Um, Telehealth, telemedicine, uh, it's been around for three decades. The, the data going back 30 years shows it's efficacious. It's just as good in, in uh, most situations as asking someone to get in their car, get on the bus, drive to the parking garage, eventually find their way into that little cubicle and have a clinician walk in face to face. So 30 years we've known that. But it took a pandemic to pull that forward and have people using it, have consumers experiencing it. And now that they have, a large majority are saying, I don't want to go back. So, so how do we take all those things that produce good um, and, and, again, not only keep them, but use what we've learned to curate better ways of doing things going forward? So. Anyone that's got a conference, anyone that's working on that as a speaker, those are the people you should go talk to and listen to. And, and if you're one of them, good for you. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Tom, as you, it's great um, you know, seeing you and, and listening to your story and, and getting your perspective on, uh, on everything that's going on there in this, uh, this amazing space that's constantly evolving. Um, for... For everybody that um, is going to be listening to this episode or, or watching it on our YouTube channel, uh, again, you've been spending time with Tom Laurie, National Director for Artificial Intelligence, Health and Life Sciences at Microsoft. Uh, pick up a copy of Hacking Healthcare, How Artificial Intelligence and the Intelligence Revolution Will Reboot an Ailing System. Um, Tom, I want to, again, thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to come talk to us for a little while about all these important topics. Obviously, thank you for everything that you've been doing there at Microsoft. And as we say on our show, uh, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow for so many people uh, via what you're doing. Very, very impressive. Well, I, re I really appreciate what you do and getting out the word. And uh, thanks for having me back. Be well. Good seeing you, Tom.